morning. I've been thinking lately that we're already in Genesis 8 and allegedly would be finishing it today. And it feels like we're just flying through it. We, we would only have about, what, 42, 41 chapters left. So, um, but it, did, it does feel, I mean, we're about to hit, you know, the Tower of Babel and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the, the brothers and we're done. They're the sons of Jacob and we're done. Um, so it is, it is going quicker. As I said at the beginning of the series, once we get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we, we will, well, uh, humanly speaking, we will go quickly through it, but with God, all things are possible. So uh, I, the intention is to go a bit quicker in larger chunks. Um, it is sometimes difficult to separate um, what to leave out, what not to leave out, what to include, what not to include in that. So anyway, we are, with all that said, that was just to tell you, I don't know if we're going to be done with Genesis 8 today. I might do one more sermon from Genesis 8 just because of, of what today's theme is. And, you know, when you come to a verse such as, uh, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil, even from childhood. You kind of just need to spend some time on that and find out where the hope is for that. So anyway, uh, we'll probably do that next week. Um, and, and by probably, I mean we, we will. So uh, today, we're, we'll, we'll still do Genesis 8. I'll read all the way through it. And uh, the, the title is Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's, oh, I'll put it on the screen so you can read along. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down. And on the seventeenth day of the seventeenth month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Arad. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After forty days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife, 
and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds and everything that moves on the land came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we, we find ourselves in... in in a, in a predicament here, Lord, that, that you flooded the earth because of the wickedness and every, every thought and intention of the human heart was bent on doing evil. And now we find out even after you flooded the entire earth and the eight people that remain, every thought and inclination of the human heart is still bent on doing evil. And God, we, is the, the further we go into your word and, and see what the human heart is actually capable of doing even in our own, from our own hearts, not just in, in the history of, of the Bible, Lord, but throughout human history, we learn that we need someone to save us. We learn that we need a Savior. We learn, as we sang this morning, that these garments that we wear that are stained with sin, we need to not just dip them, sprinkle them, we need to emerge them immensely into the blood of Calvary's lamb. And God, we also learn that you are faithful to your covenantal promises, to what you have said in your word. And you said, if we come to you, if we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. God, I, I pray today that we would understand that you are a, a merciful and gracious God, and all those who come to you will be healed will have their garments washed white as snow. Lord, we ask to, to have a glimpse of understanding into, into the depth of you and your faithfulness today. We ask this for Christ's name. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we spent most of our time working out what it means to have faith. If you recall, just to summarize, I said faith is a response to what we believe. Our faith is an action. Results in an action. We made the distinction between a generic faith and a biblical faith. Generic faith is what we think may happen, whereas biblical faith is what is guaranteed to happen. And it is guaranteed to happen because of the one who said that it would. So therefore... We concluded that the assurance of our faith, the outcome of our faith, is not determined by the strength of our faith, but rather it is based on the faithfulness of the one who made the promise, the one who made the promise being God. So today, I want to spend 
some time on God's faithfulness and why a promise made by God cannot be broken. In order to do that, though, we, 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 have, to, we have to unpack some of his attributes. We need to, we need to, we need to dig a little deep into, uh, into who God is, what God is in his essence, his nature. A little pastoral side note or encouragement, if you will. The sermon is not intended to be out of reach for anyone, as all preachers hopefully are instructed, and as I was. We're told to make sure that you put the cookies on the bottom shelf so that they're accessible for everybody to grab, which means we all have varying degrees of knowledge, right? Everyone listening has a, a, you know, a different understanding, a different degree of knowledge, so, so putting on the cookies on the bottom shelf means that make sure everyone listening can understand you, even if they don't possess as much knowledge as, as others regarding the message, the subject. And, and don't, the caution is, don't put the cookies on the top shelf where they're out of reach for everyone to get. It's silly, but it makes sense. It's, it's, you know, we get it. Now, one of the ways we're taught not, or one of the ways we're taught to put the cookies on the bottom shelf is by not using unfamiliar language or phrases or concepts that, that just the average person uh, hasn't studied. And I believe that to not use those in part, if you've listen to me preach for more than a few weeks, you probably realize I believe that in part. I'm not convinced we should completely refrain from difficult teachings and doctrines. Instead, we should attempt to make what's difficult to understand understandable, accessible. Maybe we take the, the top shelf cookies and we try to make them to the bottom shelf cookies. So, I, a lot of times you will come up to me after service or you know, text me or call me throughout the week and ask how you can pray for me. Here's a way you can pray for me, if you're wondering. Each week, you can pray to the Lord, Lord, help us understand what Timothy is trying to say from the pulpit. And that's a faithful prayer, so uh, there you go. Because it makes sense in my head as I preach it. That doesn't mean it makes sense as you receive it. So pray. Pray for yourselves. There you go. You know, when I first started seminary, I would make fun of all the fancy schmancy theological jargon. You know, that most people just you can't even understand. Including myself, right? I didn't understand a lot of the stuff. A few years into seminary, I, I was at a Bible study, and a person who was not a believer uh, didn't know really any much about the Bible, but they, they asked me about the fruit of the Spirit and how they can get that. That's all they asked. How can I obtain the fruit of the Spirit? So I just began to walk them through God's Word, probably started in Genesis. 
just jumping from one verse to another, one chapter to another, one book to another, back and forth, back and forth. I'm pretty sure by the end of it, I even explained to him who the 144,000 are in the book of Revelation. And, and, and when I finished, he just looked at me and he said, I have no idea what you just said. Honestly, I just found it fascinating to watch you do that. And it was at that moment I realized that I had become the person that I used to mock. So, uh, you know. Now, with, with that said, why, why am I talking about all of that today? Because the temptation is to throw the baby out with the bathwater by never unpacking any difficult passages, any, any tough doctrines, or anything that might seem hard to grasp. And as I already stated, I, I don't believe we, we should do that. As Christians... We should strive to grow in the knowledge of our Creator and Redeemer. We don't all excel as quick as others, but that doesn't mean that we're not, we shouldn't all be on the path. If you got the Slack message from Anna this week, she said, hey, who wants to run a 5K with me? If we all go run that 5K together, we're not all going to finish at the same time, Right? But if we're in the race, we are going to finish, right? So we, we should be on track, racing toward God. That, that really fell off at the end. You get the point. And, 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 and hopefully this will come as an encouragement. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish just with a personal level, personal note. One of, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons why we, I'll say we, attempt to just throw you into the deep end from time to time is because as a preacher of God's word, we spend all week long learning and meditating on these magnificent deep truths about God. And as we're doing that, it stimulates our mind and it invigorates our heart and it fills us with zeal for God. And because of that, we get filled with a passion to share these things with you. It doesn't mean we always share them well or explain them well, but, but that's where that zeal comes from. Wow, this is, we're spending time with God. This is who you are. I'm going to go tell them next week. I mean, you read the Psalms, Lord, save me. I will tell of your righteousness. I will tell of you in the midst of the congregation that those Psalms burn within our heart to do it. It's, it's like the beefs that we ate in Chicago over our last trip. If you don't know what like a beef is, a hot Italian beef, it's kind of like sliced beef and it's been soaking in good spices and juice all day, maybe more than a day, hopefully. They put it on this nice French roll or something. They put this jardinera, hot peppers, sweet peppers. They dip it. I mean, it comes out just this masterful piece of sandwich now when we went to Chicago I've tasted it before but I wanted to share that glory with the other elders so, so therefore due to time constraints we went to eat them at for breakfast at 9 30 a.m. that's a true story it's a funny story but but hopefully it's expressing my point 
Because each week as we study the Word of God, begin to understand the depths of who He is, we get a small taste of His glory, and we want to share that glory with you. So let's, let's try. So point number one, God's promises are unbreakable because God's nature is unchangeable. During this, back, excuse me, during this past week, I realized that it's easy to say, it's easy just to preach God won't break a promise, or to say God cannot break a promise. And as, as I was thinking about it, I, you know, have you ever considered why not, you know? We, we say these things, but do you consider why they're true, or at least why we say they're true? I mean, what, what makes God's word, the Bible, the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, what makes God's word, what makes the promises in God's word, what makes God's promise any more reliable or trustable than yours or mine? And what makes what he says so definite, so certain? And furthermore, what if God changes his mind? Can God change his mind? These are good questions to think about. I, I would argue even necessary ones. Can God change his mind? And we have to answer this. If we're going to trust what he's revealed to us in his word what he's calling us to believe, then we have to be able to know, first and foremost, that God is trustworthy. So regarding his trustworthiness, I had a long-winded explanation, and I erased it all because I found Matthew Barrett. He's a professor at Midwest Seminary in Kansas City. More helpful, easier to grasp. Barrett says, God's faithfulness stems from his nature. It is because he is immutable, unchanging, in essence, that his works operate immutably as well. He does not change in who he is, his essence, therefore he does not change in what he says and does, his will. If you find that confusing, you should have heard mine. Now, let's walk out what Barrett's saying. Summarize it a little bit. What God says, what God wills to happen, cannot change or be undone. Because what God says and what God wills to happen are an external work from his internal essence, who he is. In other words, what God says and does is a reflection of who he is. So therefore, God cannot, since God cannot change in his nature, neither can that which comes from him. Maybe that's a mouthful. I want to go back to the 
than what Paul says to Timothy. Because he explains the same thing. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Why does God remain faithful even when we remain faithless? Paul says, because he can't deny himself. It's not in his nature. Why not? Because his nature is unchanging. Therefore, so is his word. James 1, he says the same thing in in verse 7. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, here we go, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The prophet Malachi agrees with this. Chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, the Lord says, for I, the Lord, do not change. The Bible, God is revealing something through his prophets and apostles to us. He wants us to know something about them. Well, God, right here, what do you want me to know? I want you to know that I do not change in who I am. And therefore, God's word, my word, is trustworthy. It's reliable. It will not fail. For my word to fail, I would have to fail as who I am as God. Or as the first point says, God's promises are unbreakable because God's nature is unchangeable. One of the tours I never took the time to do, this is a weird illustration, but I was thinking about it the other day. Because one of the visitors said, hey, I just wanted to clarify something after the sermon. You, You said that God's promises are always true and you put the emphasis in God's promises but isn't it because of who God is? I'm like, well, yeah, that's a good point. I'll say that next week. And then I thought about this illustration. So uh, one of the tours I never took while living in Kentucky was Fort Knox. That's where they keep the gold bars that allegedly back the American dollar, the U.S. currency. If you think about it, the, the, the paper that we print... For currency, it's useless on its own, right? Because it only has value because it's backed by something with actual substance. If there's nothing to back it, if there were nothing to back it, if we were out of gold or there just was no gold, then the American dollar would actually be worthless, right? The same is true for the promises of God. The reason God's promises are so trustworthy is because of the one who backs them and guarantees them. Application. It's why I strongly recommend reading books, especially by dead authors. Matthew Barrett's not, but... uh, Reading dead authors. <sighs> My wife wasn't here for that one, so just, yeah. Reading books, why well, I recommend reading books by live or dead authors about God's attributes, about his nature, about who God is, what God is. Because while people think that that, that type of 
knowledge is just needless or useless theology, which bears no relevance, I actually say it holds more relevance than anything else. And, and here's why. Here, here, here's, the, here, here's the so what. You're telling me who God is. You're telling me he doesn't change. When I wake up tomorrow morning as the miserable person I am, what's going to get me out of bed? When you're suffering to the degree that you feel like you're being crushed under the weight of your circumstances, what could be more comforting than knowing God promises He is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit? When you're intoxicated by pain, physical or mental, tormented by anxiety, what else can give our souls rest more than the assurance that God will provide us with peace that surpasses all understanding? When we battle against despair, depression, what else can relieve us from our gloom more than the one who provides a light unto our path? when we are faced with the most undesirable trials, what else can encourage us more than God's assurance that he governs the entire universe, including our circumstance? What, can, what else can give us more encouragement to, to trust him through it than the fact that he promises a reward for those who stand test, stand the test. Knowing who and what God is is the most helpful thing to get you out of bed on Monday morning. C.S. Lewis expresses the same point about drinking deeply from the wells of God and the wells of Christ. He, he, he explains this in a foreword uh, in Athanasius' book on the Incarnation. Lewis said, for my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion, would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. April's allergic to tobacco smoke, so I can't do that part, but... I completely agree with them. I, I mean, I can, I, I, I don't, if you're anything like me, I, I can recall thinking, you know, as I would sit down and read a devotional book that, that something was, was wrong with me, wrong with my heart, simply because I, I just wasn't finding anything super helpful that was doing anything for my heart. That's I'm not generalizing all devotional books, just many, many books. I've tried to sit down and read a devotion, and here I'll even admit my, my uh, being a hypocrite. 
every quarter, I actually write for uh, uh, two devotions or three devotions for the Family Research Council. So don't read them. They don't do anything for your heart. <laughs> don't tell them I said that. No. That's why I try to write about God. But yet, like Lewis, I found, I find when I read books that most people would say are written for students... Or men with pipes in rooms by themselves. I, I find when I'm reading these things these, that, that they're captivating realities about God. That they, they expand my mind in such a way that I have to put them down from being overwhelmed with who he is. And it's at that point as Lewis says, that my heart sings unbidden. Have you been there? Have you read about God, his, his word, or just from books that, that most people are too afraid to even shake the dust off the cover? And just spent time with God, learning about who he is, what he has done for you in spite of who you are. And just been so overwhelmed as you actually thought who he is, what he's done. And, and, and you couldn't come to any other response except singing to him, praying to him. It led you to worship. You ever read the Apostle Paul's writings? He writes a lot of theology about God. And you know what follows that? Praise and worship doxology what stimulates the mind invigorates the heart point two God never learns I love that comment <laughs> sorry I just realized uh, let's actually look at today's passage for a moment and uh, verse one um, but God, that sounds familiar. We, we, we read that in Ephesians 2, right? But God, being rich in mercy. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and waters receded. And the waters receded. Moses says, God remembered Noah. He writes, God remembered Noah. Remembered what, though? Yeah, I mean, is the Bible actually implying that God forgot him? He forgot about him? Is it like Noah and his family are just floating along, you know, throughout water world, and all of a sudden God, you know, turned off the game and was like, oh, man, we forgot Noah. It's, it sounds kind of silly, but think about it. Can God forget? It's, it's a practical question. And, and we may unequivocally say no. No, God cannot forget. It's, of course it doesn't say that. Well, if we truly believe that, how many times have we wondered in our trying circumstances, has God forgotten about me? 
I think it's fair to say that's a feeling most of us experience. Almost like we've been forsaken or abandoned by God at times. Surely he's got to know about what I'm going through, knowing what it feels like. And if he loves me, he would take me out of it. I, th- I think some of us experience that on a, on a regular basis. If we, if we take anything away from Carl Truman's book that we're doing the book study through, I think one of the things should be that, that, we, that we cannot base our... our We cannot base our reality, what's true, off of our feelings. Instead, we we must filter our feelings through an objective reality, which for the Christian is the Bible, is God's Word. In other words, the Scriptures is what we filter our thoughts and our feelings through. I feel this way. Well, okay, but, but what, is, what does God's word have to say about that? Has he forsaken you? Does he forget about his people? Can God forget? Now, in order to answer that question, we come back to God's attributes, mainly his omniscience, which means... God being omniscient means that he's all-knowing. He has an infinite and perfect knowledge that is not bound by time or space. I'm going to walk those out a little bit. When When we say his knowledge is not bound by time, God's knowledge is not bound by time, we mean that his knowledge is not limited to time. He has a perfect knowledge of the past, a perfect knowledge of the present, and a perfect knowledge of the future, which means he is fully aware of, uh, aware of every minute, every detail that happened 10,000 years ago, and the same is true concerning what's going to happen 10,000 years from now. He is fully aware of every minute in detail. He never forgets nor does he ever learn. Someone says, well, I don't believe that because it says, as far as from the east to the west, God doesn't remember my sins. No, your sins aren't counted against you because they were counted against Christ. See, I love this about his knowledge, that he never forget. I, I think it really, that, that one sentence really puts it into perspective. I'm not, I'm not even the one that came up with it. It's so simplistic. God never learns. Ever. Ever. In eternity past to eternity future, there's never one thing that he will ever learn. Isaiah 42, 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Okay, the things in the past and the new things, I now declare what's going to happen. Look, before they spring forth, I tell you about them. That's, that's God's knowledge. It's not bound by time. And it's also not bound by space, which means his knowledge cannot be contained. There's, 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 no, there's no limit. There's no boundary. If... 
This illustration breaks down because God's not in parts like having a brain. But if you imagine God's brain and all the knowledge it contains going out from it, there's not a fence that goes around it that contains it. It just keeps going and going and going and going. It is a perfect knowledge that is not bound by space. It's not contained. It's infinite. I don't know if you're familiar with the president of Southern Seminary. That's where I went for seminary. I, for some reason, I had a lot of seminary illustrations today. You may be familiar with the president, Albert Moeller, Dr. Moeller. He has a bigger library than the square footage of my house times 10, maybe times 20. Now, this is only a rumor. I haven't actually been able to verify it, but, but legend has it. A person once asked him if he read all of those books in his library. And Dr. Moeller, here's a legend, responded, pick out any book, any chapter, and I'll tell you what it's about. Now, I can't confirm that, but I've, I've heard him rift many, many times in Q&As on multiple topics that in questions he was asked that he didn't know were going to be asked, and I've heard him have so much extensive knowledge about any subject most people cannot even begin to retain. I've... I've compared his brain to, what are, what are iPhones up to now? I used to say a 256 gigabyte. I think an iPhone might be up to like a 512. His brain stores a lot of data. My brain, on the other hand, is like an 8 gig. Once, once you put so much data in it, so much information, you've got to start erasing photos and text messages in order to put something else in, you know? But yet, even Dr. Moeller, even his brain has limits. It can only possess so much information. His knowledge has boundaries. God's knowledge, on the other hand, is endless. It, it, has, it knows no boundaries. As Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. How do you measure infinite? Now let's, let's bring these infinite truths down to our level. When I ask, can God forget? I think we'd all say no. We even laugh a little bit because asking that question feels a little trivial, doesn't it? But if it's true, if God is able, unable, excuse me, if God is unable to forget, why is it so easy to believe that he has? How many times have you thought to yourself, maybe even said to your spouse, or friends, loved ones, whoever, everyone I know is being blessed by God and taken care of, taken care of by God except for me. They all, they all seem to have decent lives, their families are going well, their future's looking bright. I mean, it, it just seems like the hand of God is just gently guiding them throughout the course of life. And here I am, all pathetic. I feel like a cautionary tale. Don't be like that guy. 
Now, what happened? Is, is, is God upset with me? Did I do something to displease him? Or did he just plain old forget about me? Loved ones in, in those moments of despair, you must remind yourself, preach to yourself, that God never forgets. The Bible says he's numbered every single one of your hairs. He's numbered your days. He's numbered every single breath that you are going to take. And therefore, we can trust. Remind yourself that you can trust to, to believe him. That there is not one moment of your life. There's not one hair of your head. There's not one breath you take that escapes his knowledge. Not one. Think, think of the theology of the psalmist again. Psalmist 139.4, even before a word is on my tongue, even before I speak, O oh Lord, you know it. So when the Bible says in Genesis 8, verse 1, it says, God remembered Noah doesn't mean God forgot about him and then suddenly remembered him. It means God is being faithful to fulfill the promise he made to him. The promise he made to him back in Genesis 6. The covenantal promise he made in Genesis 6 starting in verse 17 where he said, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. Verse 18, here's the promise. But I will establish my covenant with you. But Noah, you will live. You will be my people. I will be your God. And now, in chapter 8, verse 1, Noah is experiencing the faithfulness of God in real time. Now, for some reason, as I studied this passage, I couldn't stop thinking about Luke 23 and the men next to Jesus on the cross. I'm going to skip my final point today, by the way. So don't ever say I've never done nothing for you. <laughs> Luke 23, 39 through 43. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Mocking. Save yourself and us. But the other answered, actually rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? 
we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. God's word stimulating the mind, invigorating the heart. Have you had that moment? I guess we would call it, what is it, the come to Jesus moment, the aha moment, the verse 41. Can, 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 can you identify with him? Can you put yourself in that place with the man on the cross and say, I am being punished justly because I deserve to get back for the things that I did. I deserve to be repaid for the things that I did. I have sinned against, against this God who, who has, has no beginning, no end, has always existed. So has his knowledge, his power, his justice, justness, his goodness, his holiness. Without holiness, I, I can't even look at God. And I've, he, he, he knows, as the psalmist said, he, he, he knows words before I speak them. As Moses wrote here in Genesis, he knows my thoughts. He knows the inclinations of my heart. He, he knows what I want to do before I even do it. Has that led you to say along with the man on the cross, I deserve what I get? If it has, hopefully it has. Because then, hopefully that leads us to the same response that it led him in verse 42. Then the man said, say so he confesses. Look at his confession. I deserve to be punished. This man doesn't. Oh, he, he doesn't have that bad a theology. He's confessing the sinlessness of Christ. He's got some theology. And then he says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you, thief, murderer, zealot, what, all the things he deserves to be punished for, Jesus says, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's our plea, isn't it? Lord, remember me. Don't abandon me. Don't remove your love from me. Remember, remember, remember the covenant that you made with me through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. That's our banner for the Christian. That's what the Christian must hold fast till the end. And for those of us that do, on that day when Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead, and the buck stops on us, he'll recall his promise. 
Today you'll be with me in paradise. Just as he recalled his promise to Noah, and just as he will recall his promise to the man on the cross, he will also remember the blood of his covenant with us, and we too will be spared from his wrath. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, our salvation, as we, as we see with the man on the cross, it doesn't depend on his good works. In fact, he confesses, I don't even have good works. That's why I'm being crucified next to the sinless Son of God. Our salvation doesn't depend on us. It depends on your faithfulness, unwavering, unchangeable, is immutable God who doesn't break a promise because he cannot deny the very essence of who he is. Can we come into contact with you to to be in your presence where, where, where not our trials feel suffocating or crushing, but where being in your presence is a consuming fire that, that draws us to you, that, 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 that makes us turn from sin, that makes us want to just be next to you and never feel forsaken, never feel abandoned, to walk with you. God, if we try it on our own, relentlessly, to walk this Christian life individually without the church, we try to do it in, a, in, a, in our personal lives without dependence on the Spirit. We, we try to hold ourselves together without reliance on your word and spending time with you. Call us back. Call us to you as your people. You know who you've chosen. You know who you will redeem. You know who you will give new life to, God. Help us to believe your word, to entrust our lives to it, our families to it, our entire beings to it, Lord, because you are faithful. Help us to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.